Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Welcome back, Adapters. On this week's episode, I have Dr. Benjamin Preston, the Senior Director of the Infrastructure Resilience and Environmental Policy Program at the RAND Corporation. Ben has been doing some adaptation research long before adaptation podcasts were the new it thing. Ben and I dig into his work at RAND, and we also discuss the broader field of adaptation and dealing with such such issues as risk and risk management. Ben does an amazing job demystifying some of the complex topics underlying present-day adaptation planning. Okay, for new listeners of the podcast, check out the website at americadapts.org. You can learn more about what America Adapts Media and the goals of what we're trying to accomplish here. Remember, we're all adapting now to a future that's here. Okay, there's also a Facebook page and a community group. People keep joining the community group. I love this, and they're sharing this information. And so just search on Facebook, America Adapts, and the community group and the Facebook page should pop up. And I'm encouraging a broader conversation on adaptation, and people are sharing information on those Facebook pages. Okay, I am at americadapts at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. You're sitting there looking at your phone and you're wondering, should I contact Doug? Well, yes, please do. Let me know why you listen to the podcast. It's extremely helpful. It helps me when I come up with questions for my guest. I have a very diverse audience from all over the world and I love hearing from you and it influences me. It helps me figure out why you guys are listening to the podcast. And I, I like to think that that reflects into the kind of conversations that I have with my guest. Okay. So next up on the podcast is not completely clear. I've got queued up Erica Bolstead from Climate Wire and then Chris Lavelle from Bloomberg News. It's just I need to figure out who I, I, I published first and I'm looking forward to those conversations. Both are adaptation reporters. And as you can imagine, there are very few of these out there. So I'm curious on how they approach their work. So stay tuned for those discussions coming up. All right. I'm going to do more of the housekeeping at the end. So now here is Dr. Ben Preston from Rain Corporation. And after this episode, you too will be an adaptation expert yourself, or so imagine from all the great things you're going to learn. Okay, here he is. Here's Ben. Hey, adapters. On today's episode, I have a very exciting guest, Dr. Benjamin Preston, the Senior Director of the Infrastructure Resilience and Environmental Policy Program at the Rand Corporation. Hi, Ben. How are you? Great, Doug. How are you? It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure. We were connected with a previous well, Johanna Nalau put us in touch, and so it's all kind of linked in the... So it's kind of an international uh, network that we're building here. It is. got to go visit her over in Australia, though. That's what I want. <laughs> okay, you know what? I want to jump right into this. So you're at the RAND Corporation, and I think I speak for a lot of Americans when I ask, what the heck really is the RAND Corporation? Yeah, look, great question. It's, it's kind of funny because often when you tell people about the RAND Corporation, they sort of get this puzzled look on their face and their assumption is, is that, you know, sort of like, isn't that that sort of mysterious shadow organization that's involved in sort of, uh, you know, mysterious things, defense and security related. So, so let me clear that up a little bit. So. Good, good. <laughs> RAND was established right after World War II, so in the wake of the Second World War, largely to provide sort of independent R&D advice, uh, specifically to the Air Force, which was sort of a new construct coming out of, out of World War II. So it was kind of the think tank for, for the Air Force. Uh, it was started out as Project RAND, 
became Project Air Force. And that's where it's sort of history of providing for policy analysis advice to, you know, defense organizations sort of got started. And admittedly, that continues to the day. So the Project Air Force is still a federal research activity uh, within RAND Corporation. We also provide similar types of policy advice to uh, the Army, to the Office of the Secretary of Defense, to national sort of security intelligence agencies, and most recently, a new contract with the Department of Homeland Security. So that is admittedly part of what we do. But ever since the 1960s, uh, RAND has diversified to provide policy advice on a broad range of other areas outside of you know, defense and national security, particularly in areas of health, education, and sort of area that I work in, sort of energy and, and environmental issues. Okay, now hold that thought. We're going to dig into what you're doing there at RAND, but I just I want to build into that. And so RAND, I, I dug around a little bit, and they have this amazing frequently asked questions page. Have you been there yet? I have been there. Uh, some of these things are sort of part of the the mystique of the organization, but also its claim to fame, right? Right. Well, so they get these questions because, they, you know, again, Rand has this kind of shady, not shady, but you know what, it's sort of like the secret reputation. And so one of the questions was, is there a secret Area 51 report? And so they answer these questions and they, they say, yes, there was, but it really doesn't say much. But, you know, I don't think that's going to like <laughs> the naysayers are not going to settle for that. But it was kind of funny that they, they acknowledge that these are the kind of things that people think about. Uh, absolutely. But the, the other important thing about Rand is that despite this sort of reputation, um, you know, Rand exists to provide insights and policy analysis for the public good. And so part of our mission, an explicit part of our mission is to make sure that whatever work we do, it's publishable and therefore accessible to the general public. Um, so even some of the work that we do for Department of Defense and Homeland Security is actually in the public domain. Now, obviously, there are things we do for those agencies that isn't for the general public, but we do make sure that that information is published in some form so that those with appropriate clearance and need to know can access that information. So despite the sort of you know, reputation for doing things behind closed doors, we're actually very, very committed to doing things out in the open. Well, right. I think I read that 95% of the content you're producing is for general public consumption. It's like 5% sort of the national security designated. So, yeah, right. I don't think people realize the scope of the things that you're doing. Exactly. Well, so before we get into what you're doing at RAND, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your history. I mean, you've you've had, I think, a very rich and varied uh, work experience. And, you know, maybe describe that you were at Oak Ridge Laboratory and you were in Australia for a while. What were you doing in those two places? Right. So let's, so let's back up. So around 2005, I was actually working in Washington, D.C. for a, for a nonprofit organization called the Pew Center on Global Climate Change. That's how I, for my entry into the, the climate change arena. Um, and, you know, I got this opportunity. I went to a conference over in Europe. There were some Australians there. I gave a talk and they said, wow, that was really great. You know what? Have you ever thought about working in Australia? And, and I laughed, you know, I laughed <laughs> and I was like, I was like, sure, right guys. Cause no, I hadn't thought about working in Australia. But, you know, a month later I was doing a, an interview over the phone. And a couple of months after that, I was, I was on a plane and, you know, went down to Australia on a three year contract, stayed five years, got permanent residency and even became a naturalized citizen. 
Um, and you so, left? Uh, and you and, left? And I left. Well, you know, the challenge with Australia was it was uh, it's a long way away from just about any other part of the world. The cost of living, which some people don't realize, is is through the roof. And so, you know, my wife and I, our families were, you know, back in the northern hemisphere. It was tricky to fly home to see family at Christmas because it was so expensive. So, you know, so we really enjoyed it and we still have lots of friends and colleagues and I still have collaborators um, down there. But we, uh, we left in 2010 and that's when, uh, I made the move to Oak Ridge National Laboratory outside Knoxville, Tennessee. And so across, and I was there for, you know, six and a half years up until the end of 2016 when I moved to the Rand Corporation. And across both of these experiences, you know, my, my job was largely focused on undertaking applied research to try and help uh, different types of decision makers and stakeholders understand potential complicate or potential consequences of climate variability and, and climate change. And in Australia, that was largely focused around cities and local government and state government. And back at Oak Ridge, it was more focused on Department of Energy, energy utilities and and infrastructure um, sort of managers and, and and investors. So where were you based in Australia? What city? I was based in Melbourne. Uh, lived in the suburb of Richmond, which was close to the central business district. And and you know, for those who don't know Australia, there's this you know rivalry between Sydney and and Melbourne. And Sydney's known for having the Sydney Harbour, which is absolutely stunning and beautiful. However. Melbourne's known to be the <laughs> the cooler and groovier uh, city to live in. And then you get into all things like rugby and cricket and those kind of things that it kind of increase the competition. So <laughs> exactly, yeah. The dynamics of sport in Australia are very, very important. Uh, so I was I lived in Brisbane for three and a half years, and I I was aware of that rival between Melbourne and Australia. But so you were an adjunct um, faculty at the University of Sunshine Coast in Queensland. So were you doing that out of Melbourne? Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, technically, I'm still an adjunct uh, professor at University of the Sunshine uh, Coast. So though I have a few different uh, collaborators there that I work with. It's harder to get there and drop in and pay visits now, but uh, no number of folks there. And, you know, as you can tell by the name, University of the Sunshine Coast, it's not in a bad part of, of Australia. So it's a nice place to, to visit. And it's one of the fastest growing universities in, in the country. Oh, those are the happiest students in the world. But the, <laughs> but the reason I bring it up, when I was living in Brisbane, I, I was working with some, these natural resource management bodies, and I remember seeing at that university, this was like 2005, 2006, a new master's program in adaptation. And I was, I mean, that is very early compared to what we're seeing in the States. And so um, I'm sure there's been a lot of growth in, in that sort of course capacity. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's interesting because, so 2005 is when I arrived in, in Australia, and it was when sort of the issue of adaptation really took off. So you saw a number of research programs as well as a number of research institutions, um, you know, starting up, and a lot of money was flowing into both adaptation research and adaptation practice. So I came into Australia sort of at the at the right time, and there became this sort of culture of of adaptation. And what was interesting is, you know, Australia was seen you know, from basically 2005 to 2010 as, you know, international leader in thinking around adaptation to the extent that the United States was flying Australian researchers 
over to the U.S. to basically say, well, tell us what you're doing around adaptation. So for those interested in adaptation, those were sort of the, that was the heyday of, of adaptation work. And so a lot of really exciting things were going on there and, and continue to go on there. But, you know, with, you know, changes in funding, changes in government priorities, uh, as well as some of the stuff just becoming routine, probably not as, as in the forefront, um, as it was a few years ago. Okay, we don't have to dig into this, but just I'm sure p- people are curious and ignoring the most recent events here in the U.S., if you had to grade Australia on adaptation planning kind of top to bottom and then the U.S., what kind of grades would you give both? Oh, so I'm going to, I'm going to complicate that a little bit, right? Because <laughs> adaptation planning, uh, you know, it's, it's done at different levels, right? So there's sort of federal level, state level, local level, depending upon, you know, responsibilities. So what I would say is I think, um, you know, off the top of my head, I think local level is sort of where things are really happening. So in Australia, I would give uh, Australia maybe a B and uh, give the U.S. maybe a C plus. The U.S. has come a long, come a long way. But the big difference, because it's not really a fair comparison, is, you know, the United States has so many different cities, which are so diverse and have so many sort of, you know, diversity of, of challenges and priorities. Um, there's a lot of really groundbreaking things happening in, in, in U.S. cities, but there's also cities where not much is happening at all. And so I think Australia is ahead of the game at the local level just because it's had a sort of longer history of embedding adaptation into sort of urban planning and decision-making over a longer period of time. It's more standard best practice there than here, I would say. All right. You hear that? The U.S. got some work to do. <laughs> Okay, again, I just want to sort of go off, uh, veer off a little bit related to communicating science. And so I was looking at your job description when you were at Oak Ridge Laboratory, and I'm going to read this to you, okay? Bear with me. So he's a senior research scientist at Oak Ridge Environmental Sciences Division and Climate Change Science Institute, where he conducts research on the societal impacts of climate change and the role of adaptation in reducing climate risk. His research involves the development of empirical and process models, as well as the application of geographic analysis tools to estimate climate impacts and, in particular, characterize the many interactions between climatic and socioeconomic change. Now, bear with me. I have a reason for this. Okay. So this is about science communication. Now, I'm going to put you in this scenario. You get on a Greyhound bus, and you are sitting next to a pig farmer from Wisconsin, and he's wearing, and I'm not getting political with this, but he's wearing a Make America Great Again hat. And he asked you, what do you do for a living? How do you explain that? And that's why I read that previous thing. How would you have that conversation with someone? Yeah, look, I, you know, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, for anybody who works on climate change, you should be sort of prepared to, to answer that. So, I mean, I think, um, the way I answer that question is I start at sort of a high level and sort of as people continue to probe, I work my right way down. So, Typically, when people say, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm an environmental scientist. Okay. And then usually the follow-up question is, is, oh, okay, you know, that's interesting. Where do you work? And then that's easy enough to answer. I usually know where I work. So, you know, I can, I can say that. So it would have been Oak Ridge National Laboratory, Rand Corporation now. And then the question becomes, and then they usually will sort of ask a series of questions sort of trying to feel out. So what, do, what does that mean? You know, you do environmental scientists, you know, is it about, Water quality issues is about air quality. Often it's, you know, concerned about endangered species or recycling, you know, some combination. And so then I'll, you know, my response is, well, I generally work on trying to understand, you know, extreme weather events and climate change and what does it mean for 
for human society. And then that will usually lead to any number of, of, of questions. Some of the, and it's, it's funny you ask this question because many times in Australia, and I'm going to veer off and, you know, relate a, a tale, but so often in Australia, we used to do a lot of camping, right? Hang out in parks, go camping. What do you do when you're having dinner at night? You know, you go put shrimp on the Barbie, right? It may not be shrimp. It might be chicken or whatever, but you know, prawns you know, on it, the Barbie. Sorry. Exactly. Yeah. Prawns. Exactly. <laughs> So, you know, and often it's, it's a communal thing, right? There's a bunch of people hanging out, you're sharing a grill and, uh, you know, you're, you're cooking up your dinner. And so it leads to all these conversations. And so invariably I'd have these kinds of conversations and people would say, Oh, what do you do? Oh, I work on climate change. And the response would either be, Oh, that's really cool. Or it would be, Oh, let me tell you about climate change, you know? So, you know, you often run into these situations where, you know, people would, have heard things about climate change, have this sort of visceral response or, you know, have some perspective to make them think it's not a big deal or it's not real or it's a hoax. You know, and I think what you just have to do is take those conversations as they come, have them one at a, one at a time. Don't get defensive. And, and I just try and present the, the public face of, of science. I'm a guy. I'm a researcher. I'm real. I'm standing right in front of you. Uh, you know, I cook things on the grill because uh, I think it's important that people sort of have that connection with actual researchers and you just talk about what you do. All right. Yeah. Well, good luck to you. You know, what I was doing for the first few episodes <laughs> of this podcast is I I would ask my guests to kind of do an adaptation elevator speech. And so not what they do, but what is adaptation? And then, you know, they had like 30 seconds and they would have I've been always looking for that that elusive. What is the perfect adaptation elevator speech? And, it, you know, it's, it's not easy. It's, it's dealing with some complicated subjects. So. It is. So you're not going to ask me to do that, right? Well, I didn't want. To, well, shoot, I should. <laughs> All right, I don't want to. This is not like I want. I don't want third person voice. And then I no, you're. I'm that pig farmer. You're. Oh yeah, thirty seconds adaptation elevator speech. Go. Right. So what is adaptation to climate change? Well, it's basically decisions that we make, changes that we make, and how we design urban areas, manage the environment, protect people in order to reduce potential consequences of extreme weather events, um, both now and going into the future. All right. I think a lot of relatable stuff, but I think your biggest climate impact you used was extreme weather events, you know, but I guess that's relatable for a lot of people. So, well, I think, you know, it's funny because I think one of the big challenges we have is how do, how do people experience adverse climates? You know, it's, it's as, you know, extreme weather events. So people can relate to that. And you get to the specifics of, you know, hurricanes and droughts and, and heat waves. But it certainly doesn't, you know, you, you know, it doesn't, you don't want to help yourself if you talk about average changes in climate or sea level rise or changes in rainfall patterns, because all those things sound pretty benign. And what we care about are the hazards, right? So that interaction between climate change which we can study as a science and hazards, which is what we actually manage and are concerned about. You know, you have to make those kinds of connections. Okay. So I want to dig into what you're doing at RAND and I want to start at this kind of broader question about what's going on at RAND. So RAND in, in some of the areas that they work in, think about worst case scenarios. You know, you, you generate reports, you provide information to policymakers. And so again, leaving the politics or individuals aside, what about the worst case scenario with climate change, meaning that we really take no action to reduce carbon 
for decades has ran dug into like a worst case scenario for climate change? And is that something that they've shared with policymakers? So, yeah, so great question. So have we explored a worst case scenario to accept? I mean, I guess the answer is sort of yes, um, but perhaps not in the, the context you might be presenting it. So we haven't done a sort of global analysis to say, well, you know, if we don't reduce greenhouse gas emissions, this is what's going to happen to the, to the, to the world. Um, we probably haven't even done that at the, at the U.S. level. To some extent, that's not really the type of, of, of question we would ask. What we typically do is say the future is uncertain. We might have a worst case scenario, but we might have a best case scenario, or we might have, you know, five, 10, 15, a hundred different scenarios somewhere in between. So then the question becomes one of, well, given that uncertainty, what kind of decisions can we make that are sort of robust or going to hold up or insensitive to those uncertainties? And so, the, and so the point being is, yes, you can identify a worst case scenario. For example, you know, how, how big of a problem might stormwater management be in the city of Pittsburgh? Uh, 50 years from now. And I use that example because we recently did some work on this. You, you can ask that question. You can say, well, okay, well, that's the worst case scenario for stormwater management challenges. And I can try and design, you know, an infrastructure system and spend a lot of money, you know, in the design and implementation of stormwater infrastructure to, to plan for that worst case scenario. But then you have to think about, well, but if the worst case scenario doesn't eventuate, have we over-designed the system? Have we essentially wasted resources in terms of planning that, that could have been used somewhere else? So I think our approach is, you know, you have to be, is not to design or plan for a single scenario, but to plan for the sort of whole spectrum of uncertainty. And not just in the climate system, but also in land use and population and investment and finance and, and human capital. So plan across all those uncertainties and try and figure out what action or set of actions is going to perform best over all those possible futures or at least you know what are the what under what type of future is my system really going to fall apart so where what's what are the thresholds in the system where oh if we do have climate change of a certain magnitude then we're really going to be in trouble and so then you can start to look for you can start to monitor your system monitor the situation so you can sort of tell if you're trending towards some of those really unpleasant futures. And I get the sort of the practical approach you're using Pittsburgh and you look at these sort of extreme scenarios, but, and I, I guess back to my point is looking at climate change more broadly, mm-hmm. I know that's tricky and you, a group like Rand just doesn't want to be sensational, but mm-hmm. I would argue that a lot of decisions down at that lower level, those, so the Pittsburgh and the infrastructure, are going to be made based on guidance that they get that this overall threat is that big a deal. And again, I'm not telling Rand they should go do this, but having groups like Rand, that sort of network of decision, not decision makers, but um, information generators, like saying that these are the sort of situations that we're going to encounter would hopefully filter down. Cause you know, if it's environmental groups or, you know, Sierra club saying this, it, it, doesn't resonate as much Mm. does that does that make sense like having that sort of information and that approach just it would be helpful yeah no i get it and this goes back to the you know issue of credibility of the information that you're getting which is critical 
in these kinds of, uh, particularly around the issue of, of climate change. And Rand, what I like about Rand is it spends a lot of time thinking about you know, its credibility, thinking about how it can be, you know, objective in, in the work that it does. And so, I mean, so, so back to your point about what's the role of Rand in informing stakeholders about, you know, large risks or sort of big uncertainties or the, or the worst case scenarios. I mean, I think absolutely that has to be part of our analysis. Okay. I mean, that's part of being objective is to say, well, here's the, the big 800 pound gorilla of risk that's in, in the room that you have to take on. What we don't necessarily do is say, you know, you have to plan, you as a decision maker have to plan for that level of risk. What we just say is that risk is there. And then it becomes up to the, to the stakeholder to decide, you know what, we're willing to invest the additional money to prepare for, for that particular risk, which is fair enough. You know, I mean, that's the sort of subjective, you know, values call. So, you know, we can't tell them to plan to that level, but we can inform about costs and benefits of different levels of investment. And with that information, they can make an informed choice about what risk they're willing to tolerate and what risk they want to they want to mitigate against. Now, I might not remember the book correctly, but early in the, the book, George W. Bush administrations, uh, the author wrote the one percent doctrine. And I, I think it was in response to, you know, how Dick Cheney, I guess, was looking at terrorism. And if like it was, I think the whole notion, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like if there's a one percent chance mm-hmm. that this might happen, we just have to conclude there's a hundred percent chance or something like that. And will that sort of attitude, uh, I guess, come into climate change and all the decision makers? And maybe that wasn't a healthy attitude, but it, I remember at the time that that book came out and just that was the approach to terrorism. Yeah, well, I mean, this this sort of gets to the whole issue of how society and individuals perceive different types of, of risks, right? And, you know, I mean, and, you know, I don't, I don't know how useful it is to compare terrorism and climate change. I would say those are very incommensurate types of of risks, but we see those kinds of comparisons being made. And, and sure, if we're willing to invest large sums of money in combating terrorism, a very present risk, but one that affects a small number of people, why aren't we willing to invest, you know, much more in climate change, which maybe is longer term, but affects a much, much larger number of people. So look, I mean, I, you know, I mean, that's the kind of debate or discourse that, that folks get into. Uh, but, you know, it reminds me of, when people talk about risk management, some people emphasize the possibility of these sort of low probability, high consequence events, right? So the worst case scenario and suggest that if you take a risk management approach, you have to manage to that worst case you know, scenario. And I've always sort of pushed back on that. I think you need to understand consequences. You need to understand likelihoods, but you sort of Manage based upon your, your values, right? So do I care about that worst case scenario? Am I willing to tolerate that particular risk? And if so, then I may not, you know, choose to try and mitigate that entire risk, risk away. So I think, you know, I mean, the, the big thing here is there's this role for objective, credible scientific, you know, analysis, but you can't, and it's, this is decision making. This is public policy. You can't get away from the fact that People make decisions based upon their values, their preferences, their tolerance for risk. You know, and that varies from individual to individual, from organization to organization, from, from country to country. But in, in democracies, at least, you have to, you have to navigate those, those sticky sort of values issues. 
Well, I had Judge Alice Hill on a few weeks ago, and she worked at the National Security Council as their senior director of resilience. And we talked about climate change being a threat multiplier. You know, and we even talked about the Syria context. She believed climate change played a role in sort of the movement of people that led to a lot of the problems associated with Syria. And so, uh, you know, the questions I w- was asking her is, I still don't feel we talk about climate change as this urgent issue. And, you know, it's it's feeding into these other very important issues. And so I, I guess that's a bit frustrating because I think a lot of us consider it this the greatest problem facing humanity over the next hundred years. And yet, how do you articulate that and how do you sort of thread urgency in, into your approach today? So it's difficult. It is. You know, I mean, it's it's for me, it's what makes it a really interesting issue to work on. But saying that it almost makes it makes it makes it it almost trivializes right like well climate change is really fascinating because it's really complex and i can sit back and watch all these different individuals have these sort of interesting debates from different perspectives but you know at the end of the day this is about you know an issue that affects people in the real world down in the future it affects you know our environment it affects uh, wildlife and things that lots of people you know care about but yeah the whole communication challenge and how do you disentangle issues of, you know, climate change versus climate variability. How do you disentangle what's happening at the global scale from what's happening at the local level? Differences in developed countries versus developing countries that view this in very different ways. And all of that kind of, I think, slows the ability for us to basically get some clarity around the problem, but it definitely slows our ability to respond in a sort of timely way. I guess the topic of risk management, that's what you do at RAN. I'm just curious if you could sort of maybe explain a, a bit more, maybe some of the projects or things that you're involved in at RAND. And we talked a little bit about what, what is a risk management approach to climate adaptation. Maybe give a little background on that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, I mean, risk management is, you know, I mean, sort of this technical term, right? But, you know, the bottom line is, is risk management is what we all do every day. Right. So if you think about risk and sort of definition of risk is one of the definitions is that, you know, it's this interaction between consequence and likelihood. Right. And it turns out that human beings are are sort of reasonably good risk calculators. Okay, so that sounds technical. So what do I mean by that? So you got you get in your car and you drive to work. There's a potential consequence that you will die driving to work in an automobile accident. Okay, have people every day. It's a very real consequence, and I would say a fairly significant consequence, so a fairly big consequence. But at the same time, we know that the likelihood of any one of us you know, experiencing that consequence is, is fairly low. And so as a result, we don't think twice necessarily about getting in our car and driving off to work, right? You know, what we do do is we try and, even though that risk is there, we also try and manage it a bit. So we don't, we typically put on our seatbelts certainly helps mitigate that residual risk. Generally, most people avoid driving under the influence. Uh, That adds an additional risk element. You know, we might maintain our car and and take all these other variety of actions that sort of bring that risk down to a manageable level. But that is just one example of any type of very routine decision that we all make on a regular basis about weighing, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen and how likely is is that to occur? And so, that's basically the element that's basically a risk and risk management is just the process by which we try and influence the size of the consequence or the likelihood, you know, of it occurring. And that's the sort of 
conventional sense of risk management, but it's, it's often applied in very formal ways by governments, by businesses. When they think about, you know, I have a set of objectives that I want to achieve. Here's, you know, the types of things that could prevent me from achieving those objectives. What can I do as a business, as an organization that reduces the effect of those things on my business and allows me to achieve my objectives? So it, there's, you know, there's international standards for how to do risk management that are kind of best practice in many organizations. There's a lot of guidance on there on how to do it. And typically people like it because the language of risk management is already sort of embedded in government, in business, in the financial sector and financial markets. So it's not like we're introducing some foreign term or wonky sort of policy term that organizations aren't already familiar with. So that's, so that's sort of the risk management stuff in a, in a nutshell. I'm like, I'll, I'll pause there because I probably lost the train of where you wanted to go. <laughs> okay. No, that's good. A little background of the whole notion of risk. Cause I still think it's very confusing for people of like how you're taking action today based on future events. Yeah. And I, I guess getting to at RAN, you right. show up at the office. What are you doing? Right. So, okay. So a lot of the work that we do in this arena of sort of climate risk management is, is focused around through a number of core areas. Uh, and they tend to be related to water. And by that, I mean sort of water availability or water quality. Um, and typically it's sort of the regional to local level. So Colorado River Basin or Pittsburgh or Chicago or New York or Los Angeles. And so typically what we do is, you know, we don't just go out and do work just because we think it's interesting. The way we operate is people come to us and say, we have a problem. We're concerned about, for example, how climate change might affect the water supply for our community going into the future. And we're trying to figure out, you know, what do we invest in to make sure we can sustain our water supply? Um, what kind of policies do we need to implement to, to protect ourselves, et cetera. So that's, you know, I mean, that's a, that's an example of, of a study that we would do. And there's we have plenty of examples in our portfolio of work where we've done that kind of, of work. And, and the way that works is going back to what I said earlier, which is, okay, let's think about how might the climate change over the next several decades. And what does that mean for water resources in a, in a particular area? So that's sort of one side. How does climate affect water? supply. But then we might think about, well, okay, that's the sort of climate piece, but what else is affecting water supply? It's like, well, you know, population's growing, there's competition among, you know, growing number of residences. Oh, there's sort of big agricultural activity, which is using lots of water. Oh, we have to think about the energy system that's pulling a lot of water out of of the reservoir or uh, the basin in order to you know, as part of electricity generation. So there's this whole bunch of competing factors on water resources that are also, you know, changing over, over time. And then the other component is, okay, well, how is the system actually managed? Meaning what are the regulations? What are the policies that are in place? Who makes those decisions? And we'll basically take all those bits and pieces and, and integrate them together, often in a, in a modeling uh, framework um, to the extent possible and look at you know, how changes in each one of those parameters or different assumptions around each one of those parameters influences, you know, water availability going into the future. And 
the the way the way the way risk comes into this is often there's a threshold where you know if you fall below a certain level in your reservoir you're either unable to to pump water out or you violated some regulatory standard for how much water has to be there and so what you're looking at is well what's the likelihood that I'm going to fall that I'm going to exceed that threshold going into the future given changes in climate changes in population changes in demand and or changes in policy and then what can I do to buy myself some more room. So in other words, reduce the likelihood that I exceed that particular threshold. So in this situation, you know, the risk is that you run out of water, basically, and your risk management is, you know, actions that we can take, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's regulations, whether it's pricing that can, you know, reduce the likelihood of exceeding that threshold or running out of water and going into the future. You actually haven't been at RAND that long, but is there an example that you can use where someone came to RAND, they needed help via a local government, and they worked with RAND, and then they implemented whatever recommendations report after your collaboration? Is there is there that example out there? Can you point to a, a city that's really done a good job? Yeah, well, I'll give you two examples, uh, just because they're on the on the top of my head. Well, I'll give, I'll give you a number of examples. So, the, some of the latest work we've done is is going back to Pittsburgh. You know, so, Pittsburgh, we have, so we have a whole initiative going on in Pittsburgh around community resilience, and part of that is focused around stormwater management. So, Pittsburgh is like any number of well-established aging U.S. cities. Uh, it has a stormwater and sewer system that was combined. So it was this combined sewerage and stormwater management system that's probably a century old or more at this point in time. The city's grown around that system. It doesn't have sufficient capacity to meet all the needs. And every time it rains, you get, you know, this mixture of stormwater and sewage being dumped into local waterways, right? So this is basically a violation of EPA water quality standards. It's not by any stretch of the imagination best practice in terms of urban water management. But the flip side is how do you take a city the size of Pittsburgh and go in and rip out all the infrastructure and replace it with something new? Massively costly, disrupts businesses. You know, it's just, it's, it's a big mess. So it's a big, complex, longstanding policy challenge that's been there for years and years. So, the work we've done recently is to, to go into Pittsburgh, look at what kinds of models they're currently using to make decisions about and assess what's happening with their stormwater management system. And then, you know, we run a number of scenarios through that model that includes different assumptions about how climate and particularly rainfall is going to change in the future. That's uncertain, but we can capture that, you know, uncertainty. Changes in land use, changes in population that affect or how much sort of stormwater is captured and is going to flow into the system. And then look at a whole different range of management options. So increasing retention, increasing use of, of green infrastructure, expanding sewage treatment plants. So you can, you can handle more sewage. So it isn't being discharged in local waterways. So the whole broad range of options to basically go through and test, you know, all those different options. Uh, alone or in combination and look at how the system responds. And what that allows you to do is say, well, under option A, it costs X amount of money. And you know what? It doesn't do anything to actually, you know, address a particular problem. But if you did a combination of options 
B, C, and D, you could sort of address 75% of the problem. And part of that analysis is around figuring out what's, what's cost effective. You know, so what gives you the biggest bang for your buck in terms of addressing that problem? So that's all new work. It's, it's about to, to be made public, but you know, it remains unclear. You know, so that, that information now available to the city of Pittsburgh to start the sort of future planning around which of these options are we actually going to implement and how do we finance that. So that's kind of a wait and see in terms of, of the response, right? So that's one example. I'll give you another one, which I'm familiar with because I'm looking a lot at energy, you know, as of late, the work that we're doing in energy. So a number of years ago, a number of years ago, we did work for Israel looking at the future of natural gas in, in Israel. So that's both a, a source of electricity generation in terms of natural gas power plants, but you know, you have to shore up the whole supply chain. So we were asked to do work to sort of look at, well, going into the future, you know, how should we think about building out our natural gas network and our infrastructure in order to use natural gas as part of the energy mix um, for the nation, you know, going into the future. From that, you know, we, we did a similar type of analysis, look a lot of look at a lot of different scenarios and identify sort of options you know, in terms of, you know, really low hanging fruit that you should be doing no matter what. So in this case, it was, it was, you know, demand management. So let's, let's reduce energy demands. Let's reduce demands on natural gas. That's just sort of a win-win in terms of, you know, you know, helping, you know, improve the, the resilience and robustness of your, of your system. But there's a range of other options. So thinking about importing natural gas, building pipelines to shore up supply, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, we were able to present those recommendations to the nation and to the government, which they then used to actually prioritize future investments and decisions regarding how their natural gas infrastructure was going to be developed. So in some ways, it became a sort of critical foundation for future infrastructure planning in, in Israel. So that's a that's a pretty high impact, you know, type of activity. You know, that seems like a good day. You know, you've got the <laughs> the country of Israel taking your recommendation and acting on it. That's a good day. That's to go out and have a beer day. Exactly. Uh, okay, so I want I want to shift a little bit here, and you sent me some journal articles, and you academics, I mean, that's I, terrible, I, isn't it? I can. I, I'm so sympathetic. I had Jesse Keenan on. He's 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 at Harvard. Before he came on, he sent me like probably a hundred pages worth of stuff and I'm like, oh but <laughs> that said, I dug through it and it, it's fascinating and it's very useful to me and it helps me be, ask you better questions. And so one of the articles you sent me I thought was very interesting and it would have been really useful to me five, ten years ago, let alone <laughs> today. And the one is I'm talking about and, and they were all useful, but toward reflexive climate adaptation. And so there's this whole concept of in this this is really going to, you know, for a lot of practitioners, they're just like, you know, just give us something useful. But th- this whole debate about, you know, is adaptation research for adaptation? And then there's adaptation research about adaptation. Now, I want you to try as best you can to explain that in very simple and short terms. All right. Cool. Easy. So good distinction. So research about adaptation. So how should one think about that? So imagine an academic in your head, whether it's tweed jacket or, you know, long gray beard or whatever, but, uh, you know, imagine an academic in, in your head who's sitting on the sidelines and watching cities or communities or businesses trying to figure out what to do about climate change, right? So, and they're sort of watching that process, observing it, 
and then writing down sort of what they've observed into sort of how it all works, right? And so they might say, well, you know, I'm watching this local government trying to adapt to sea level rise, but it turns out they're, they're really struggling because they can't figure out how to pay for the actions they want to implement, right? And so, you know, they go off and write up this, this long paper with big words in it and not many great pictures that basically says, oh, you know, uh, local governments are really challenged to adapt to climate change um, because of, you know, inability to, to, to finance their adaptation actions, right? So they're doing research and they're looking, they're doing research about adaptation, but the results they generate don't actually influence any kind of decision making, you know, in terms of, of adaptation, you know, directly. And as a result, it's, you know, it's about adaptation, but you're actually not doing anything that's really advancing decision making or financial investment or regulation. Okay. So in some ways, it's again, sitting in your armchair observing the whole process. The flip side is, is research for adaptation, where the whole goal here is to undertake analyses that directly inform some decision-making event that somebody somewhere has. So say you've got a coastal manager who's trying to, who's worried about sea level rise, is trying to decide, should I build a seawall in this particular location? And any work that you do that helps inform that decision you know, yes, I'm going to build it. No, I'm not. Is research for the adaptation action? Does that make sense? It did, and it did. I had to read the whole thing. You know, it it, it resonated with me though too. Is that my experience? And, and I, you probably agree that adaptation is an emerging discipline. It's a relatively new discipline, and maybe for academics, it's not as new. But I remember when I was working in Florida, I was working for a wildlife agency, and then I went up to National Park Service. And most of those folks weren't doing any sort of climate change planning. And I got to sort of just kind of create these programs. And I'm going to totally be honest. I was winging a lot of it. And there was not like digging into the, Oh, well, what do, what does the, you know, the literature say about this? I mean, that's not how, you know, the state agencies run or the, so it, it was interesting reading this article about the, this kind of dilemma of like you as an act, academic what kind of useful information are you out there providing and it's such a moving target too that you know adaptation it's evolving and i think it's evolving quickly in some ways and how are you providing useful information to the practitioners and so i think that's what you were explaining yeah that's certainly you know a big element of it i think you know the point you're making about things changing over time i mean that's saying i've been working on adaptation for 15 years so i've certainly seen it change a lot so back in the day you know we didn't talk about adaptation you know, adaptation was like the dirty word because if we're adapting to climate change, it means we're not reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We're not preventing the problem. Uh, and therefore we should be ashamed of ourselves. Right. And then over time, you know, you know, we kind of got over that and sort of recognize that, well, adaptation just kind of, kind of makes sense. But still, you know, when we first started talking about it, we just talked about options, right? Oh, I've got sea level rise. Well, I can, I can build a seawall. Right. And so that was that was the sophistication of our analysis of adaptation was here's a bunch of things that you can do that might help you, you know, address this particular risk associated with climate change. And I think over time we've gotten we sort of realized that's not very satisfying because it's like, well, how do I prioritize that whole list of options? You know, and what do I make that prioritization, 
you know, what's it based upon? Is it based upon economics or people's values or protection of, of wildlife? And I think the era, era we're sort of in now is trying to understand how do I know that my adaptation is successful? You know, have I had the impact that I thought I was going to have? Did I achieve my objective? So how do I evaluate, you know, adaptation to sort of learn what works, what doesn't work? Um, so I think that's sort of the, the cutting edge right now in terms of thinking about adaptation, but that's come over years and years and years of people thinking about this issue and then getting smarter and smarter over time about how they, how they deal with it. I think implementation is getting much better. I even five years ago, and this is more in the conservation circle, but tools like vulnerability assessment, those are, that's what you do with adaptation planning. And so I would go to these workshops, you know, they'd identify some species or some landscapes and you do this vulnerability assessment as sort of the go-to thing and scenario planning could be part of that or it might be a separate thing. And then you would have outputs from those tools. And to me, what the frustrating part was that, okay, a lot of intelligence went into like these workshops to produce the outcomes of the, this vulnerability assessment. But then you have decision makers at higher levels who don't necessarily even know what to do with it because you look at what goes into a vulnerability assessment and I know they're all different, but you know, you, you might have the future IPCC models. Like what are these different scenarios and what, what are the potential impacts? And then we're going to make a series of adaptation recommendations out of that. But then it kind of lands with a thud. And, and I, yeah. and I think you're seeing more folks being able to get to the implementation phase, but it was still a very frustrating process because it's like, well, the executive director of this agency, we, we haven't given him enough to make some key decision. He's not going to do X management decision on the manatee based on this vulnerability assessment we did. And so that was that there was that kind of disconnect. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, the, the most eye-opening thing for me working those years that I did in Australia was sort of working in close cooperation with staff and local government, which allowed me to sort of orient myself to how they view their sort of day-to-day management problems and, and how climate change fits in. But in that context, I think we we frequently go about sort of adaptation in a sort of backwards way, right? And particularly things like vulnerability assessments and risk assessments. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, the number of times I've seen people say, well, okay, we want to, we want to adapt. So what's the first thing we need to do? Oh, well, we need to go f- get some climate change projections so we can figure out how the climate's going to change. Right. It's like, well, why not start with, you know, next year's budget and figure out how much money you got to spend on capital improvements in your infrastructure? You know, so anyway, so everybody starts in sort of a, a strange place, I think, from, from decision making. So you start with the projections and you go, okay, well, now we need a vulnerability assessment or a risk assessment. And you go, okay, well, we're just going to assess all risks that we can think of. And then we'll, again, come up with a whole bunch of options that we think will, will help deal with that. And then it's like, well, okay, well, now what? Right. So, I mean, I've seen so many adaptation plans or risk assessments that have tens, hundreds of adaptation actions that could be implemented. Okay, great. What do you do with that? How do you decide? How do you prioritize? Which ones are going to work? Which ones can you actually afford to do? You know, which ones are the, is your community or constituents, the public, you know, going to support? So I think the, and that's, and, and that approach, I think sort of runs counter to the whole concept of risk management to begin with. And so what you need is you need to start with the decision you're trying to make. So you need a, a, a community to say, 
hey, we want to adapt to climate change. We have this particular problem that we're concerned about, and we're trying to figure out, do I do option A, B, or C? Which is a nice, focused, discrete problem that is, is tractable. And then you build your analysis around that decision-making event. And you can basically say, well, of these three options, this is what the costs are going to be, this is what the benefits are going to be, and you're actually supporting the decision-making around which of those you're going to do. But until you get to a point where decision-makers actually want to make a decision and are struggling to figure out which decision to make, you're kind of just broadcasting information. And that's that can be useful because it helps people understand the problem, understand what the science can do, what the science can't do. It helps people become literate around adaptation and, and climate change. But it's not necessarily going to be the thing that that pushes implementation into into action. And then, you know, people have to be realistic about that. I think. Yeah, I just think there's a huge disconnect with the major decision makers within any entity and the rank and file that are actually doing the work and coming up with the info. So it's, it's a problem. Yeah. Okay, so Ben, I, I want to sort of pivot and need to wrap this up relatively soon, but a, a few more questions and just kind of... I guess completing that thought about this notion of what academics are doing and focusing on what practitioners are doing. And are you familiar with the expression jumping with the shark? Are you at all familiar? I've, I've recently come across this. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know how I missed on, I missed out on it for so many years, but, uh, yeah, it's coming it's to a- my vernacular lately. Well, and I use it quite a bit for re- regarding adaptation. And I always thought like, Practitioners were guilty of jumping the shark. And so just for, if the listener out there, if they're not familiar, it was a terrible episode of Happy Days where Fonzie is pulled uh, on water skis and he's going to jump uh, an enclosure of sharks. And so he jumps the sharks. He lives, in case you're wondering. Um, but what it's within a few years after that, the expression came out, jumping the shark, because they took Happy Days in a direction that most people weren't comfortable with it, you know, going. And I think people have a different definition of it, but it's like it, it went outside the bounds of norm for what people's expectations were. And then recently uh, there's uh, Nuke in the Fridge. and was that most recent Indiana Jones <laughs> film where he gets in a fridge and there's a nuke and he's something about the he survives by being in a fridge. And they're just like, all right, Nuke in the Fridge, jump in the shark. All right, I'm going to make my point here. And so... With academics, again, my my sort of, not warning, but just uh, be cautious of not jumping the shark and sort of the work that you're doing. Because not only do I feel like the practitioners are way ahead of a lot of the people that they work with, but you know the academics are two steps ahead of, of many of the practitioners. So I think it, it just, there could be a major disconnect of the application of what, what's needed in the coming years. If that any of that made sense. No, I mean, I agree with that, that completely, you know, and I think... You, uh, you mentioned, uh, Johanna at the sort of the beginning of this and, and the work that she and I have done together over the years is really focused around these sort of conflicts between, uh, sort of academics and researchers who study these things, you know, for, for, you know, with good intentions and do good research, but it doesn't always align with the folks that are actually making decisions and, moving dirt around, you know, on a daily basis. And, you know, I think this is, this is becoming increasingly, uh, sort of problematic. And if you think about intergovernmental panel on climate change and its big assessment reports that it does, you know, every several years, each iteration, you know, and it continues to be an iteration, 
you know, there's a sort of call for, well, this is great, but at what point are practitioners going to step up and be involved in this process so we can actually, particularly around questions around adaptation, so that we can benefit from both their understanding and their knowledge because they're the ones who make these decisions all the time, but also make sure that whatever we're doing is relevant so they can sort of take something away from this process that they can take back into their communities and, and use. And so that, that tension between what's, you know, intellectually interesting and what actually affects people's lives on a day to day basis is, you know, where adaptation is, is, has kind of I've struggled. And, you know, I think there's plenty of successes to go around, but those successes often come from the researchers and the practitioners working closely together uh, and sharing the knowledge that they have. And, you know, I, I'll admit that one of the things I said, you know, 10 years ago probably was, you know, the goal of adaptation research is basically to work ourselves out of business. Because at some point, you know, the whole research for adaptation is going to become routine, right? So local governments, infrastructure planners, city planners, they're just going to say, well, yeah, of course I'm taking climate change into consideration in my design either because that's just what you do, duh, or because, well, this is what all the regulations say I have to do. And at that point, it ceases to be this sort of cool, intellectually interesting thing that PhDs do and just starts to be sort of normal, routine you know, business practice. And the, the, the researcher may not be as important in moving adaptation, moving adaptation forward. We're probably not there yet, though. <laughs> no. Uh, so two questions left for you. And again, I know you're not getting political at RAN, but what we're seeing with some of the executive orders that were rescinded on climate change adaptation and resilience, I know this will probably impact RAN in regards to some of the things that you work on. And so are, are you seeing any of that now? Cause I mean, and what I'm get what I mean it specifically is, you know, just there was, I guess in the last few weeks, President Trump rescinded the, the, I forgot the number, but the executive order that talked about all the agencies doing adaptation planning. Okay. You know, that's his choice. That's the decision he's making, but I'm, I guess it's an area that with the federal government that RAN won't necessarily be working in. I mean, are, are you just not expecting to engage with the federal government on resilience and adaptation? Is that sort of what, what's happening? No, I mean, I think, you know, it's a mixed bag of things. I think the, the, the real answer is, is, you know, we don't know. I think it's a big question mark right now. We have a new administration. Many political appointments haven't been made, which means many strategic decisions in the government have yet to be made. The, we don't have a budget at this moment in time. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, speculation about what's going to happen in the future, but, and, and a lot of rhetoric, but it's, it's actually quite unclear particularly across government, what's actually going to happen, what's going to be supported, what's what's not going to be supported. So that's basically policy uncertainty. It comes with any change in the administration. And yeah, it affects us because it makes it difficult for us to sort of plan to sort of anticipate what are the needs going to be moving forward. And so we can, it's difficult for us to position ourselves to meet those those needs. But, you know, I, I don't think necessarily that, you know, one could conclude at this point that, you know, issues of resilience are going away because issues around things like infrastructure, for example, are big. And we've heard a lot from this administration about, you know, the need to invest in, in infrastructure. We know resilience issues are closely, there's a lot of discussion on resilience in 
defense and national security arena. So I think our expertise is still quite valid in, in those circles. And I think the other thing to point out though is that, you know, we, we, we don't just work for the federal government. So a lot of the work that we do, particularly at sort of the local and regional level is supported by state governments, by local governments, by foundations. And so regardless of what's happening at the, at the federal level, you know, there's still any number of organizations and decision makers that continue to ask questions and continue to have needs for, for analysis. So in that sense, I think, you know, we're going to continue to do what, what we've always done, which is, you know, provide nonpartisan objective, you know, policy analysis and advice to those who come to us with the challenges and decision problems they have. Good answer. And I think, you know, of course, it would be better if the federal government worked on these issues, but I think it, it's also if the states and local governments and private organizations are doing it, it's a chance to probably to get pretty creative because, you know, there's certain ways you're inhibited working with the federal government. So, you know, I, hopefully we'll see in the next five years some really creative adaptation work going on. Well, I think, you know, on on this topic, I think, the, the you know, sort of legitimate sort of policy questions that arise here is to what extent do you need a consistent federal policy signal to move forward issues around adaptation or even mitigation? You know, so where does it matter? Where does it not matter? You know, what types of decisions can be made and implemented just fine, you know, at the local level based upon local community priorities versus, you know, what really actually should be coordinated you know, across the different levels of government and therefore there is an important role for federal federal government. So, I mean, that, that's, that's a question. That's an open question that, you know, we're sort of thinking about and that others probably need to, need to explore. Okay. Last question. I asked this of every guest at the end. If you could recommend one guest to come on the podcast, who should I talk to? Oh, ooh, okay. Oh man. Thank oh, big. Man. Thank that, big. Thank big. Ah, that actually. Helps. Um, <laughs> how about the mayor of Los Angeles, Garcetti? Oh, all right. I'm still. I haven't had my first politician on yet, but I'm. I'm. I'm trying to work. Someone suggested uh, the governor, but I think the mayor would probably be a really exciting guest. Do you have an in? Uh, uh do I personally have an in? No, I'd probably a few degrees of separation. I can get there, but you know, I think. The whole point is, you know, again, you know, I'm an academic, right? And so I like to work with practitioners, but I can't claim to be a practitioner. But if you really want to understand adaptation and how it works, you know, you got to talk to those folks who are, who are sort of doing it in, in real life. So, you know, someone of that caliber, that stature, who's trying to think about, you know, the future of a big, you know, U.S. community. I'd be curious to hear what someone like that has to say about climate change and adaptation. All right. No, I like that idea a lot. I mean, I could contact their office and getting a politician to come talk about things sometimes isn't as hard <laughs> as you think. And so this is the only, well, that's not true, but it's, it's one of the few podcasts focusing on climate change and adaptation. And so it's a real opportunity to come share what their city is doing. So I don't think that's a stretch at all. Good suggestion. So any final thoughts to my listeners? Just any parting wisdom, anything you want to share? And, and like some of these papers that I've mentioned or some of the other things that you shared with me, I'll have in my show notes and it just links to you. And if there's anything additional you want me to put in my show notes, I can. But uh, any final thoughts? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, uh, I mean, thanks to you, I guess, I think it's great to have a forum where, you know, just about anybody and, and anyone can sort of access, you know, this sort of debate and, and discourse. Um, I mean, I guess for me, the, the big take home message that I try and leave people with is, you know, we talk about climate change adaptation, but, you know, it's not all just about the climate, right? So the climate's one thing that's changing, but lots of other things are changing, you know, going into the, into the future. And so the challenge for us is to think about how we weigh climate and how it's going to change with all the other sort of priorities and concerns and changes that we see in our society and in our communities on a regular basis. Um, because the, the, the fact is, you know, invariably we're going to have to, to have to have to prioritize. So let's make sure that we're looking at climate change through a bigger lens than just what's happening up in the in the clouds. Okay, great message. And again, thanks for coming on. Great conversation. And I think this will be a real resource for folks. And I also hope people realize that there's a lot of really hard adaptation going on out there that I think a lot of us don't realize exists. So I, I appreciate what you do. Thank you very much. My pleasure. All right. On that note, adapters, until next time, this is America Adapts. That's a wrap, Adapters. I hope you learned a few things. I certainly did. Thanks to Ben Preston. I really appreciate you coming on, Ben, and sharing your experiences and insights. You have worked all over the world. Adaptation is a complicated business, but it's also exciting that it's an emerging field, and many people are contributing to this emerging field. It is very exciting to sort of be in the middle of that. All right, before you all get back to your lives after listening to this amazing podcast with Ben, a few things. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or whatever you prefer to listen to your podcast are. Subscribing lets new episodes arrive in your inbox whenever they are ready, so you don't have to remind yourself to go back out and find them. And remember, podcast consumption can be quite complicated for some people. I want to make it easy. Some people need a player. They look at a website and there's a player and they click play. A lot of long-time podcast listeners get, you know, you go on iTunes, they have the iTunes app, and you just subscribe, and it's there for you. But to this day, getting new people, especially who aren't familiar with podcasts, comfortable where they're going to consume these is not easy, and I'm going to try to make it easy for you. All right. Also, consider writing a review. You know how I love reading reviews, and I, I want to start reading some reviews on air. I'll probably touch in with you first um, if, if I know who, who wrote them. And hearing reviews helps, again, me make decisions on future podcasts. You know, if you have insights, I mean, most of them have been positive, but I get a sense of what, what's working. And, uh, you know, here's your chance to influence what the podcast is doing. So please consider writing a review or at least going and giving five stars. All right. I'm at Twitter at USA Adapts. And again, with the two Facebook pages and there's a community group. And you have to ask to join that, but I haven't not approved anyone yet. And please share with your uh, friends and colleagues. All right. I had mentioned last week I had a huge announcement. I hate being such a tease, but my apologies. I'm not quite ready for that. I have to get a bunch of things in order before I go live with this announcement. And so bear with me. The announcement's forthcoming, but I got a lot of pieces to put in place. Okay, also coming up, I'm coordinating several guests. And I had mentioned earlier in the podcast, I have Chris Flavel from Bloomberg News and Erica Bolstead from Climate Wire. And I'm just having to figure out how I place those. And I have, you know, other podcasts set up. But again, with scheduling these things, it's not always easy. Okay, I'll let you go. Thanks for being such an amazing group of listeners. Please, again, share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. Don't forget, you adapt, we adapt, America adapts. I hope you all have a great week.